folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering, is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month. For the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. Broadcasting from Montreal, this is The Korea File, a podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean Peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode, The Nation Magazine's longtime Korea expert, Tim Shorek. But first... Peninsula is home to nearly 75 million people, 25 million in the north and around 50 million in the south. Korea was a unified and independent country for a thousand years up until the Japanese Empire's annexation and occupation of the peninsula in 1910. At the end of World War II in 1945, influence zones on the peninsula were drawn up arbitrarily from the center crease on a map in an issue of National Geographic magazine, and the United States and Soviet Union each occupied half of the country on either side of the 38th parallel. That's known today as the DMZ. Negotiations between the two countries failed to lead to an independent, unified Korea, and in 1948, UN-supervised elections were held in the South, leading to the establishment of the Republic of Korea, which was rapidly followed by the establishment of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea in the North. The U.S. supported the South, the USSR supported the North, and each government claimed sovereignty over the whole of the country. In 1950, the Korean Civil War begins, and after three years of hostilities and nearly three million dead, Korea was and remains a divided country. 64 years later, South Korea is best known for its televised melodramas, bubblegum pop music, and cutting-edge smartphones. North Korea, meanwhile, is known for the strange dynastic leadership based on a cult of personality of its ruling family, its supervillain role in the axis of evil in American foreign policy, and of course, its nuclear capability. Tim Shorek grew up in post-war Japan in the 1950s, 
and has written extensively about the Koreas for American progressive magazine, The Nation. In this conversation, Tim discusses the very real nuclear threat posed by American political instability, talks about the unthinkable human cost of a new Korean war, and considers the role the international community has to play in resolving the nuclear crisis on the peninsula. Well, we're already in kind of a conflict that, that could grow more serious. If you're asking if we're headed for war, uh, I don't think so. Uh, but I think that the statements by Trump and the threats by Kim Jong-un have heightened the tensions to a great extent. Uh, but I really don't think that we're headed for an actual armed conflict. I want to call attention to a recent interview you had on Democracy Now! on the Crisis on the Peninsula, where you discuss the history of U.S.-North Korea negotiations and show that the agreement made in the 1990s by President Bill Clinton and Kim Jong-il, the father of Kim Jong-un, froze North Korea's nuclear program for 12 years. There was an agreement to move towards full diplomatic economic relations, an agreement broken by the United States during the Bush administration. Tell us more about that. Well, that agreement, of course, uh, came before they had any nuclear weapons. It was in the their nuclear weapons program was in its infancy. They were processing plutonium from a nuclear power plant that had been built with uh, Soviet assistance, and the North Koreans had threatened to pull out of the nuclear uh, of the proliferation treaty, and uh, and so this greatly alarmed the United States. And uh, actually, at that time, the U.S. was considering, it came very close to launching a military strike on that facility, that nuclear facility at Yongbyon. Is this the incident where Jimmy Carter did some secret diplomacy uh, and went in and sort of negotiated a, a, a peaceful settlement? Yeah, yeah. That, that was exactly when it happened. And as the two countries, it seemed like there might be a war, uh, Jimmy Carter stepped in and, and actually... It wasn't really secret. He flew there in, in full view of uh, CNN and other television networks and met with uh, Kim Il-sung, and uh, they, they uh, agreed to a basic outline of what was you know, later agreed to, which was that North Korea you know, froze its uh, nuclear program and its, its, its production of fissile uh, material and, and, and plutonium. Uh, they froze that. In exchange for, as you said, you know, a full relationship, uh, diplomatic and economic, with the United States, and the U.S. also agreed to provide them with uh, fuel oil uh, to make up with a closed reactor, and also the, the, a consortium of countries led by South Korea and Japan were going to build uh, light water reactors for North Korea that were seen as less proliferation risky. And uh, so that agreement actually uh, froze North Korea's uh, nuclear program for 12 years. Uh, during that 1991 to 2003, they didn't produce any fissile material. Uh, during that time, they, you know, U.S. intelligence picked up signs that they might be building, they might be buying material and equipment to process uranium to get to a bomb in another way. Uh, the Clinton administration knew about this, uh, these, these, these uh, North Korean you know, visits to uh, Pakistan, Japan, and other places to buy this technology, uh, but decided they didn't have a program, uh, uranium program. But in 2002, uh, the Bush administration 
which came to office, uh, you know, opposing in principle this agreement, the agreed framework that Clinton had negotiated. Uh, they they uh, uh, found out about this uh, intelligence and went to North Korea and said, you are violating the agreement because of your uranium program. And they, they basically tore up the agreement at that time. And a few months later, Bush placed North Korea on the axis of evil list. And so after that happened, North Korea, uh, they, they denied having a uranium program, but they said they had a right to build one. Uh, but that led to a breakdown of the whole process and uh, they they kicked out any uh, any international inspectors, and then began moving toward uh, building a nuclear capability. And by 2006, they exploded their first nuclear bomb. So it was a it was a case of really both sides, you know, cheating. But if you look at the if you look at the historical record, you know, it looks like in terms of actually breaking the agreement, the U.S. did first. Uh, but you know, I would say that both sides broke the agreement and, and, and completely, you know, dissolved. And then North Korea, you know, proceeded on its nuclear program. Yeah. And a hat tip to Canadian David Frum, who was a speech writer in the George W. Bush administration, who penned the Axis of Evil line, I believe. Thank you, David. Uh, okay, 20 years later, there are 25 million people in, the North, in North Korea. North Korea has nuclear weapons. That's a fact. There's nearly 50 million in the South, including 10 million in Seoul and another 15 million within a 100-kilometer radius of the capital city. So how can war as a solution to the nuclear issue even be an option? How do conversations about a potential hot war even happen the likely number of civilian deaths should make the idea of war unthinkable, shouldn't it? One would think so, but this is not the mentality of a lot of people in this particular administration or in the U.S. military. Uh, and so there is a, a big push here among these think tanks and you know people that advise the government on Korea policy to you know have these have these military options uh, available, and of course Trump has taken a close look at them. Uh, you know, and it's, you know anybody who knows you know about the history of the U.S. and Korea uh, knows about the history of North Korea or the history of the Korean War knows that you know any kind of U.S. attack on North Korea, even if it's a you know what they call a preemptive attack to take out some of the missile sites would lead to a counterattack by the North Koreans, and then that could easily devastate Seoul. And they have the capability to shoot missiles, uh, you know, pretty far. And they could shoot missiles, you know, to hit U.S. bases in, in other places in, in Korea, but as well as Japan, uh, the, the bases in, U.S. bases in Okinawa, as well as the U.S. base in Guam. So, you know, it, it's, it's a very dangerous situation and for these officials to be you know talking about war uh, like like Trump does so casually uh, you know raises the stakes uh, so I'm not quite sure why they think war is a, is a real possibility I guess they think that somehow you know the US would would uh, you know you know prevail but it would it would be at the cost of you know millions of lives including you know, tens of thousands of American lives. So, you know, to me, 
And I think to most Koreans, the idea of a war is just unthinkable. There's a 2010 article in Popular Mechanics Online Archives where Eric Sofji, the piece's author, references a Time magazine analysis that suggests that North Korea's conventional artillery would flatten Seoul within the first half hour of any confrontation. Does that sound accurate? It sounds pretty accurate. I mean, they have tens of thousands of artillery pieces. Uh, and, and I think it's, you know, that's, that's a lot of what, you know, when they're looking, when the U.S. is looking at a preemptive strike, you know, one of the uh, possibilities I've seen mentioned in recent months has been, you know, going after and taking out that, uh, uh, that artillery at the beginning stage of any kind of attack. Sofji, in his article, later attempts to debunk this analysis with a claim from Anthony Kordsman of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank in Washington, D.C. Kordsman says that artillery is not that lethal. It takes a long time for it to produce the densities of fire to go beyond terrorism and harassment, even in a worst-case scenario where North Korea fires its artillery batteries and rocket launchers with total impunity, the grim reality wouldn't live up to the hype. Buildings would be perforated, fires would inevitably rage, and an unknown number of people would die. Seoul would be under siege, but it wouldn't be flattened or destroyed or leveled. What do you think of this banal assessment of the human cost of a hot war on the Korean Peninsula? Well, Cornishman lives in Washington and works in Washington and is not close to the DMZ like, you know, tens of thousands and millions of Koreans are. It's a pretty arrogant take when you think that even under his scenario, you know, thousands and thousands of people would die. So, uh, late, you know, there's, there's also been articles, you know, recently by people taking a look at what would happen in the first stages of a war. And I think there's pretty much universal agreement that, you know, the combination of these artillery plus its its missiles and, you know, the rest of its military, you know, South Korea could could uh, deal a devastating blow to not only Seoul, but other parts of, of, of South Korea as well as Japan. So uh, I think that, you know, I, I just can't understand a statement like this. Uh, it, it can only be said by someone who's safe in Washington and is not anywhere near these kinds of uh, artillery. If we, had, if we had artillery, thousands of artillery pieces, you know, 30 miles north of Washington, say in Pennsylvania, uh, he would be singing a very different tune. Right. And I bring up this seven-year-old popular mechanics piece because, for me, it touches on the weird arm's length remove that the U.S. has for the Koreas. And this includes the intelligentsia, the government, the military. And American media doesn't ever reflect on the history of the relationship between the United States and the Koreas or on the role and responsibility of the U.S. in the national division of the peninsula. So how come? Why does this entire relationship go down the memory hole every time there's a crisis on the peninsula? Well, that's a really good question. It's, 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 sometimes it's hard to find an answer to that. I mean, we've been involved in Korea you know, for 70 years now. And you'd think that Americans, you know, after all that time would have, you know, more depth of understanding about what the situation is on the ground and what it's like in North Korea, what it's like in South Korea. Uh, but, you know, for all this time, the U.S. has basically treated, you know, South Korea as as a, uh, you know, it's kind of a big brother, little brother relationship. You know, the South Korea will just do whatever we say and, you know. We control our military, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, there's actually more reporting now in the U.S. about, you know, talking to ordinary as they can, North Koreans, 
than there is reporting about South Korea. There's very little understanding in the in the U.S. media or even attempt to understand the complexities of South Korea's society and its political culture. And and uh, you know so and then, you know beyond that, there's there's very little historical reporting about you know the Korean War, what led up to it, what happened has happened since. Uh, most Americans, uh, there's a you know there was a poll a few months ago where a majority of Americans said they uh, they would support a preemptive attack on North Korea, but by the same number, about 60 percent, they could not find North Korea on a map. And so they don't even know where it is. So the depth of, of understanding is very, very, very low. And the press has been has done a, a terrible job of trying to educate Americans. Speaking of the Korean War and the relationship, with, the historical relationship with the Koreas, 26,000 Canadians fought in the Korean War and more than 500 died in the conflict. But the reasons for their sacrifice were arguably kind of arbitrary. So as America moved in to replace Japan in a post-colonial Korea, is it true that a map in an issue of National Geographic that was, like, kicking around the barracks was the source material for how the American military decided to divide the peninsula at the end of the Pacific War in '45? Yeah, that's exactly how it was drawn. Uh, actually, you know, Dean Rusk, who later became Secretary of State, was working at the Pentagon at the time, and they, you know, went in, they went in, where they were talking about, you know, the U.S. and the Soviet Union accepting the surrender of Japan and Korea, and the U.S. and the Soviets had decided at Yalta that the Korean Peninsula would be divided between the two armies. And so, you know, Dean Rusk went into a room, pulled out a National Geographic map and said, oh, this 38th parallel looks, you know, about, the, you know, about halfway through. So let's just draw the line right there. And that's how it was done, very arbitrarily. And, you know, so, so uh, you know, this country, which was as a 5,000-year history as a single nation, uh, was was arbitrarily divided, and it's, and it's remained divided, you know, very tragically. Oh, my God. Okay, South Korea today remains a major American military asset in the region, and there's nearly 30,000 American troops in the country. These troops, along with more than 600,000 regular South Korean soldiers and the more than 3 million South Korean citizens in the country's military reserves, serve under a joint command with the U.S. military. So, would South Korea have wartime operational control in the event of a conflict with North Korea, or do the American generals have final decision-making capability? Currently, the U.S. generals would have final decision-making capability. Under the joint command during peacetime, as right now, it's headed by a South Korean general, but this has only been in recent years. But during wartime, the, the commanding officer that goes to the U.S. general, who's the commanding U.S. general in Korea. So during wartime, uh, the U.S. military would have control over the South Korean military. And this is the only country in the world where such a relationship exists. I might add that uh, this current government, you know, President Moon Jae-in, uh, has said recently that he wants to restore, to put back a South Korean general in charge of those forces during times of war. And so this command structure is being looked at, you know, very carefully. Uh, but the, the, the uh, decision about, you know, restoring, putting a South Korean general in charge has been delayed for a few years under the last two governments. And so I think this is 
bound to change, you know, pretty soon. But it's gonna it's gonna take you know some some negotiations between the U.S. and South Korea for it to come to fruition. Yeah, after a decade of rightist leadership in South Korea that was generally hostile to engagement with the North under Im Young-bak and the recently impeached Park Geun-hye, the recent election of Moon Jae-in as president of South Korea seems like it could shift government policy back to one of productive engagement with the North, but with the heightened level of hostility and rhetoric between the U.S. and North Korea right now, that possibility is looking more remote. Is peaceful, productive engagement with the North still possible? Well, for South Korea, uh, I believe it is, yes, but it's going to depend a lot on what happens between, you know, the U.S. and North Korea. Right now, the conflict really is between the U.S. and North Korea. I mean, North Korea, you know, talks about the U.S. as its as its main enemy and says it would not use nuclear weapons against any other country in defense except the United States. And so, you know, I think that, you know, the standoff has got to be resolved, but it's it's uh, you know, moving ahead in terms of North-South relations is something that Moon Jae-in ran on as a platform. And, you know, he was supported in this by the Korean people. After he was elected, there was one poll that showed 80 percent of South Koreans wanted to have, uh, you know, negotiations and, and talks between South and North. And, of course, you know, Moon Jae-in uh, quickly offered to have talks, you know, Red Cross talks, uh, so that families could visit each other that have been divided, and then military-to-military -military talks. Uh, the government of Kim Jong-un has not responded to any of these, and basically says because of the South Korean military relationship with the United States, there, there's no point in having those kind of negotiations right now. Uh, but, but I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's definitely, definitely possible uh, I think, but I think there has to be, you know, some some um, moves made first before that can happen. You know, there's one proposal out that's been discussed for a few months now about having a freeze for freeze, where the North Korean side would freeze its missile tests and its nuclear program and its nuclear tests, and the U.S. and South Korea would put a moratorium on or scale down these huge military exercises they hold twice a year. And that seems like, you know, a very, you know, good idea, but it's been rejected by the U.S. government, and it's also been rejected by the South Korean government. But I think it's the makings of what could be, you know, some kind of negotiation between the U.S. and North Korea. And once that begins to happen, I do believe that there could be negotiations and an improvement of relations between South and North. But first, this very critical, you know, military standoff has got to be alleviated in some way. Yeah, this bad actor in the White House, this chaos element, this factor of unpredictability, to me seems like the most dangerous aspect of what's happening right now. This is the guy who allows patrons at his Mar-a-Lago golf resort to take selfies with the nuclear football, that 45-pound duffel bag that contains the nuclear codes and all the equipment required to launch a large-scale apocalypse on the planet. So how much does the element of unpredictability that Trump adds to the crisis heighten the possibility of war breaking out? Well, I think, the, I think it heightens it you know, to a great extent, and it's been interesting seeing in the last you know, week or so uh, as you know, as Trump has made these these kinds of outrageous statements, like he's going to, you know, if the North Korea doesn't stop its threats, 
the United States will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea, a country with 25 million people. Uh, you know, those statements have even alarmed, you know, the sort of the neoconservative, uh, you know, people he here in Washington who, you know, want to confront North Korea. I mean, they, they see, you know, Trump's statements as, as making this situation uh, much worse. And in fact, you know, Trump sees everything through, you know, himself. I mean, he's, he's a narcissist in chief of the United States right now. And so, you know, he, he seems to take all this stuff personally. And then, you know, of course, he's attacked Kim Jong-un personally. And, you know, Kim Jong-un is, is the, uh, you know, he's inherited power through his father and, and grandfather. And he's seen as the, you know, supreme leader by North Koreans. And so, you know, for the first time ever, uh, he, you know, he responded, uh, a Korean, North Korean leader responded to Trump with his own personal message. This was, this is very, very unusual, you know, about a week ago when, when uh, Kim Jong-un actually wrote his own editorial in the South North Korean uh, Communist Party newspaper, Rodong Shimun, and, you know, that's when he called, you know, Trump a dotard and, and uh, you know, said that uh, the North Korean side would, you know, have, have their own military response ready. Uh, so, you know, bringing it up, making it this, you know, standoff between, you know, two individuals and, and you know, putting all your personal pride into it is just, you know, really, really a dangerous way to approach this, this problem. With a belligerent and unpredictable United States and uh, North Korea who are going to be intractable on possession of nuclear weapons, like that's not going to change. With them staring each other down across the DMZ, is there a way for the international community to help defuse the situation? Do they have any role to play? I, I, I kind of, I think that one way this could be resolved is so if a world leader with some stature could step forward and, and offer to, to negotiate between the U.S. and North Korea. You know, somebody like, you know, the, you know, Angela Merkel of Germany, you know, somebody like that who's, you know, widely respected around the world and has some experience in the world stage who could, you know, who could step in. I mean, I, I think that the way things are going now, it's, there, there's, there's, it's, it's, you know, drifting towards, you know, this really dangerous point where, uh, you know, going back to your earlier question, uh, you know, I think the great danger here is miscalculation. You know, a, a, you know, someone in North Korea mistaking, you know, a statement that Trump might make and then an action that the U.S. takes, you know, as seeing that as an attack. Like when Trump says something like, you know, we're locked and loaded and ready to go, and then he sends, you know, B, B-1B bombers past the northern border, you know, in international airspace, but but passing, you know, near the North Korean coast, planes loaded with bombs and all kinds of or all kinds of weaponry that could destroy Pyongyang and other Korean cities. When he does that kind of thing, you know, that's where you can get some miscalculations. You know, like, is this an attack? They don't know sometimes by what Trump is saying. And so it's a very, that's what's a very dangerous situation. And I think, you know, there needs to be some backing away where, like I said, like, you know, some world leader could come in and say, okay, we'll talk to you and you and let's try to, you know, get some ground rules here so we can discuss how to 
de-escalate the situation and, you know, bring in this issue of freeze for freeze and, and other issues that could be discussed as a way to ratchet down the tension. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if we can get, you know, any other, any other, if there's, I'm not sure if through the current situation with the, you know, the U.S. government the way it is uh, and the North Korean government the way it is, if, if anything can happen without some kind of foreign intervention like that. Tim Shorek is a writer and commentator on U.S. foreign policy, national security and intelligence, and on East Asian politics. Tim, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's The Korea File for this month. You can find Tim's most recent piece, Is Trump Following a Japan First Policy Against Kim Jong-un, at thenation.com. Follow him on Twitter at Timothy S. I'm on there, too, at Andre Margoulet. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher and as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and Anglo Info Seoul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find The Korea File there too with links and current news and commentary about the peninsula. For some great writing on contemporary Korean history, check out Don Oberdorfer's The Two Koreas and Bruce Cummings' Korea's Place in the Sun, available at bookstores everywhere. And check back wherever you found this podcast on December 1st for a conversation with the University of Michigan's Jaeyoon Kim, author of Contested Embrace, Transborder Membership Politics in 20th Century Korea, as we discuss the historical origins of the Korean diaspora in China and Japan. And if you can, please consider throwing a few dollars my way at patreon.com slash thekoreafile. Thanks. Until next time, thanks for listening. From Montreal, I'm Andre Goulet.